And welcome to the Beer Vona Show. We are on X-Ray FM or downloaded on your podcast, whichever you listen to us. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. You're Jeff Allworth. I am Jeff Allworth. You are joining me from your... Actually, I don't know exactly where you are. Where are you in your house? I am in... Funny you should ask that. Uh, <laughs> your new office? I'm in my new office, which wow. I, I've, I've been a freelance writer working from home for 10 years, and I have always done it from the dining room table. And for the first time in those 10 years, I am now ensconced in my office, a uh, small bedroom, barely uh, one of those 1925 bedrooms that we would scoff at now. Uh, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen closets that are bigger than this, but it makes a nice office. Yeah. Well, very good. I've, I've actually been exiled from my office. <laughs> I'm in the basement, and in normal times, uh, I work from home half the time, and I drive down to Corvallis and work at Oregon State half the time. That's right, because you are Patrick Emerson, professor of economics down there at Oregon State. Oh, very good. Well done, yes. And so I have my little home office, and that's where I work. Um, But now, my wife, who's an elementary school teacher, has a lot more uh, interactive stuff going on with her students than my twice-a-week class. Uh, So uh, we decided the most efficient answer to all of our woes was to have her take over the office. And I've exiled myself to a little desk I have in the basement of my house. So here I am. I have a tiny little window sort of up high towards the ceiling. I can kind of see that there might be sun outside. Yeah. Not not entirely sure. (laughs) It's a... Well, it's in that time of year where uh, the the leaves are back. Uh, I can actually see out into my backyard, but... I have a nearly perfect canopy, so it's a little bit difficult for me to see the sky. But probably it's blue, maybe some clouds, I don't know. Anyway, the point is we were appropriately socially distant, yet we join you here. Uh, we'd like to thank X-Ray for uh, putting up with our poor audio and, and helping us produce the show. That's right. I'd like to remind you that X-Ray FM is a listener-supported uh, radio station, so if you um, have a dime to spare and uh, support this, then please support them. That's right. They're bringing you wonderful news and entertainment, and um, like everybody, they're uh, finding things challenging now. So, yeah, help out. Uh, I should finish uh, explaining that you are not just Jeff Allworth in your office in Southeast Portland, but you're also the author of many uh, venerable beer books, including the Beer Bible and the Widmer Way. Thank you. That's true. And you actually are the author of, uh, let me th- see if I can get this kind of close, a, um, um, uh, no, I can't. It's some kind of new economic textbook. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty standard uh, intermediate microeconomics textbook that I, uh, uh, I have now published with the Open Educational Resources Group at Oregon State University, so it's now a free open access uh, textbook that anyone can use, uh, and the idea is to reduce student costs. So um, doesn't have doesn't have bells and whistles, but it uh, it's a textbook. It's there. <laughs> Just has solid factual information. Download yours today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where you get it, but if you type my name in Intermediate Micro, you might find it. There you go. Uh, enjoy, everyone. You can you can. Uh, you can read it uh, at night as you're going to sleep. <laughs> works works better than uh, than um, Nyquil or whatever. <laughs> All right. So today, um, oh, anything else you want to say about life these days, Jeff? No, there's not a lot to say. We are trying to turn this beer podcast away from the the constant grim uh, focus on the pandemic and. Um, 
in that capacity, no, I don't really have a whole lot to say. So. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, let's turn to the show then. So on today's show, we're going to immerse ourselves deeply and delightfully in beer. Uh, only stopping briefly to acknowledge the unpleasant events swirling around us. For a nice change of pace, we'll be heading to Belgian Flanders today and dig into one of the most interesting categories of beer in the world, brown ales. It is a style both changing and surprisingly expanding and is as much a story of tradition and culture as style. So we're going to get to that soon, but of course, uh, we first have to do, (laughs) almost sadly, the news. In big news here in Oregon, Governor Kate Brown on May 14th issued an order opening up most of the state. In order to qualify, the 31 of 36 counties met two criteria. Uh, First, they've seen a 14-day decline in COVID-19 hospitalizations, and second, uh, emergency room visits for COVID patients had to be fewer than the average flu admissions for that time of year. Qualifying counties must also have adequate testing, contact tracing capacity, isolation facilities, and healthcare capacity, which includes equipment. This order allows bars and restaurants to open with certain criteria for social distancing, mask wearing, and cleaning protocols. So that uh, was a big moment, and we're starting to see what happens with the organic uh, response once she opens, uh, you know, once she's opened that. Yeah, I think kudos because they came out with a very comprehensive plan, a very obviously a very sort of um, well thought out plan. The 31 of 36 counties was basically all the counties of the state except for the Portland metro area think pretty much yeah and a couple like marion and polk had big uh big outbreaks and they were in trouble so yeah i think marion got turned down when they apply you have to apply uh for for multnomah county where we live uh the big problem is uh personal protective equipment as i understand and contract tracers right they they need to hire a whole bunch but they don't have any money to do so so (laughs) they're kind of in a standoff right now i don't know uh, how that'll get resolved, but uh, Oregon's done pretty well. You know, some of the stuff, I, most of it seems pretty uh, reasonable. Some of the stuff doesn't entirely make sense to me. I'm still trying to figure out this 10 p.m. mandatory closing time for bars and pubs and restaurants. Yeah, maybe it's because uh, the assumption is you'll be more drunk if <laughs> you stay longer and therefore less cognizant of social distancing at all. Social distancing? I don't know. Maybe, I suppose. It just seems like it concentrates people into a fewer hours. That's true. I, I have seen a lot of pushback on that. But you know what? This is Oregon. How many people are actually out in restaurants <laughs> after 10 p.m.? I mean, come on. Well, this is true. In my neighborhood, at nine o'clock, everything's shut down anyway, so it's not going to have a big, dis- yeah, going to have a big, big impact. But I was just, I was just curious because I, I didn't understand the, the logic there. The other thing is they've also released these um, guidelines for uh, gyms to reopen, uh, and um, as an uh, as a rapidly aging. <laughs> Uh, uh, sort of semi-athletic person um, I've really taken to to lap swimming in the pool and that's one of the things they won't allow gyms to reopen and that one confused me hmm. lap swimming alone in a lane by myself in a chlorinated pool seems like a pretty safe activity but it, it does does it have to do with locker rooms after that yeah I don't know the locker rooms are okay showers are not saunas uh, hot tubs things like that or jacuzzi sorry saunas um, uh, sorry at uh, uh, what's the steam version of a, of, a, of a sauna? Yeah, anyway, steam rooms. Those are all uh, 
no goes. So I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, we're not epidemiologists nor uh, infectious disease guys. So. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad. Yeah. I'm not saying. I'm not suggesting it's bad policy. It's just one of those things where it's not well explained, and I was trying to figure out how they came up with that. <clears throat> anyway, that's pure pure self interest. I wanna I wanna get back to swimming. I miss it. I was going to say, man, you're really close to the Willamette River, right? It's right there, yep. calling out to you. Yep, it's calling out to me. Yeah, it's you're probably far enough south that you're not even in the hot spot of the Superfund site that is the Willamette River. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I am far south of the Superfund site, although you know, Willamette River does drain all of the agriculture of the Willamette Valley in Oregon and take it into Portland. So it's not as if it's the cleanest river in the world. Um, right. There is runoff. But I don't. that doesn't really bother me as much. It's just it's cold and it's you know, yeah. in the elements and stuff. And it's not a nice heated, a heated pool indoors. <laughs> so, but anyway, it'll be interesting to see how, how people, how reticent people are. I'm going to be really curious to see how restaurants do, how, com- yeah, how I mean, comfortable will people be uh, going back to restaurants? What we've seen elsewhere and what uh, it seems like is happening in Oregon in, in early days with this is that uh, you can open a, a state, a county, a city, but that doesn't mean that restaurants actually open. And I've been talking to breweries and um, they are not all opening now. So some of them, and, and some of them are uh, kind of planning to open tentatively, but not fully. And so we're, you know, it's it, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. And we've, we've seen the same thing in other states. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a weird one because, you know, mask wearing apparently is very effective, evidence suggests. And so that works great for retail and other places where you have to go in and be commingle with people but uh doesn't work for restaurants so that's right it's hard to wear a mask when you're stuffing food in your pie hole (laughs) that's right all right similarly uh well on a similar vein i suppose um citing a national bureau of economic research working paper or nber as we say the washington post reported that nationally a hundred thousand small businesses had already closed permanently as a result of the covid19 pandemic 43% of all businesses are temporarily closed, and businesses have reduced employees by an average of 40%. So uh, we mentioned this because of the small business nature of most uh, craft breweries. It's it's brutal out there. Yeah, I was really shocked. I mean, I have no idea what percentage 100,000 small businesses is, but it seems like a lot. And we, we have not actually been seeing what I expect will happen not so long from now is, you know, local reports of all these beloved local uh, businesses going out of business. So to see that already 100,000 have closed was really shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, too, because, you know, nobody knows if, uh, how soon, depending on how soon things come, in, come back. So hang in there, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's the grimness. What You want to talk about beer? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on to beer now. <laughs> let's do it. This is too. We at some point you have to find the joy elsewhere. So let's do it in beer. Okay. So you are going to take us to uh, Belgium to the world of Belgian Flanders and Ode Brune. Yeah, I was in uh, this region uh, last fall when I was there doing the beer bible work, checking in. This is a place that I really love. Uh, it so if you probably very few people have a mental image <laughs> of Belgium. Um, it's sort of shaped like uh, a kidney. And Brussels is kind of right in the center. So if you go north from Brussels and east, mm-hmm. you're in the area that I, that we're talking about. Uh, that's the the Flanders, kind of the classic Flanders region. 
Uh, it's a small country, so there is a fair amount of, uh, you know, th there was once a lot of regionalism, and now it's there, it's less and less regionally defined by beer styles. But historically, this was where all the brown ales were brewed, and we can go back. Uh, not you don't have to go back that far, and you can see evidence of that. Um, and then there are still a few classic brewers who continue to make these brown ales, and it's one of the coolest regional expressions of brewing in the world. And I thought um, it's one of my favorite places to go. And I thought it would be fun to go back there because what I discovered uh, I went, when I went in 2011, it was very grim. It seemed like that vein of brewing was starting to die out and the brewers there were not at all uh, excited about their prospects. And so when I went back last year, at the end of last year, I was shocked to find that their prospects had really become much brighter and we have a one new brewery of uh, young guys who've started who are in it for the long haul they want to be around for decades and help uh, reestablish this tradition of brewing brown ales and uh, they are fun guys and really exciting and it got me all excited and I thought it would be wonderful to talk about this kind of ancient tradition and where it came from and and what it's all about cool well that sounds great by the way the Flanders region is that the um, Flemish speaking that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And Flemish uh, is, is what the Belgians call this language. It is effectively a dialect of Dutch. So it's uh, if you speak Dutch, you can speak Flemish. And uh, there are, I think, a few quirks about Flemish, but it's it's basically Dutch. Okay. Just want to get that straight. <laughs> Trying to keep it all. Yes. And, and, and the other Belgian, the other half of Belgium, uh, the southern half is called Wallonia, and that's where they speak right. French. So, uh, and Holland is, of course, north of Belgium, and, and France is off to the uh, west and right. south. So that is the nature. And boy, we could even talk about the politics of Belgium, which is divided between these two halves, but let's not we do should that. should not, yeah. probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> Belgium is one, one big happy place, don't worry. And I, we'll do that on our other podcast, uh, Small Regional Grievances. <laughs> yes, low, <laughs> low crunchies today. That's right, that's right, there you go. Uh, beautiful. Uh, okay, so let's talk about brown ales, um, and in fact, but while we do this, I'm just going to crack one here, uh, which I have a local a recreation from our friends over at Freem, uh, and they made they made an Ode Brune. I'm going to try to see if I can get this near the. Yes, I did. That. Very well done. Excellent. Thank you. I'm trying to hold it awkward. We we don't have Edwina, which we have in the studios of X-Ray, our our, yeah, our beer mic. Beer mic. I know. These are the sacrifices we make to stay home and stay safe. <sighs> Or stay home and save lives. Sorry, I get that wrong. <laughs> well, we're also staying safe. We're also staying safe, yeah. So, historically, this region, every little town, and I think actually it was probably even every little brewery, uh, would make their beers slightly differently. And there's kind of a famous guy named Georges Lacambre, who in the 1840s did a worldwide tour. And he, he spent a lot of time in his home country of Belgium. He's from Leuven, which is just uh, east of Brussels. Uh, and and studied all the practices mm -hmm. and documented all the practices that he found in the world. It's one of the most uh, important and interesting texts that's available. And he when he went to Flanders, he documented all these different kinds of traditions they had. Uh, and there was kind of a famous one in Mechelen, uh, which is a is a, a city north of Brussels. Mm -hmm. Then one further east in in kind of the classic area around Ghent. Uh, he the one in Mechelen he called Mechelen Brown Beer. And the one 
further east he called Flemish brown beer, but actually these represent uh, a, a wide variety. And he even wrote that the brown ale of Flanders comes, and now, now I'm quoting, in a number of varieties. It varies greatly from place to place and sometimes in the same locality. Often in the same town, there are not two breweries whose beers are the same. So it, it has kind of a, a consistency in that everybody made it, but everybody kind of made it differently, which, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, is perfectly Belgian. <laughs> so <laughs> it's how they roll. So I've assembled a few clips here, and I thought we would start with Rodenbach, which is the kind of the classic producer, one that you can find uh, in most decent bottle shops. And, and in fact, if you go to a place like uh, New Seasons, Good New Seasons will have Rodenbach. It's, it's a commonly available beer. And I thought we would just start with uh, Rudy Gaillet, uh, which I call Rudy Unpronounceable because that's not even a very good way to say his name, where he talks about uh, how, how they make Rodenbach, um, which uh, uh, is, is kind of the classic formulation uh, of making these beers in the modern uh, era. And, and, and it, it really is quite modern because as recently as the uh, 1970s, Rodenbach was doing spontaneous fermentation. Um, and they, they kind of have moved away from that uh, and now do what Rudy is going to talk about. And, and also, it's, it's important to note that Rudy is one of the most important humans living right now in terms of beer. Uh, he is an enormously revered man. Um, Rodenbach is a super important brewery. It's, it's one of the most important breweries in Belgium. And he's kept this tradition alive. He's an ambassador for the, uh, the brand. And I partly just, when I got to interview him, I was super impressed with him as I was with many brewers. And I thought you should all hear him. I think we've had other clips on yes. the podcast from time to time, but it, it's great to hear him. Yeah. So it's great to hear him. So let's just uh, cut to that and we'll come back and that'll kind of form what everybody knows about Belgian uh, brown ales. And then we'll, we'll move on to this other brewery that's new and how uh, how they approach things. All right, so here's Rudy. Uh, but when you make wort in your brew house and you pump it on a, on a cool ship and, you, and it, you store it there during one night, right. during the night it will be infected by microorganisms. And then when you pump, when you pump your infected wort on wooden vessels, then you could realize lambic. As pump, when you pump your infected wort on wooden vessels, then you could realize lambic, uh, spontaneous fermentation. Right. When you reuse the yeast culture that is formed during the spontaneous fermentation process and they have had the possibility to have a, 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 a very good culture, then you arrived and you reuse it, then you arrived in mixed fermentation. When you, in our fall, we work with a, a yeast culture with eight different yeast strains right. and also a little bit of lactic bacteria. Okay. And during the first week, we have an alcoholic fermentation from the, the yeast cells. And after one week, it were the, the lactic bacteria took it over during the lagering time. Mm. And then, we, and, and during the lagering time, we reduce the yeast cells in the beer by precipitation. So they, they, fall, they fell down. And then we go with a nearly bright young beer on wood. So the, the big difference between spontaneous fermentation and mixed fermentation is that with spontaneous fermentation, you go with a wort on wood, on wooden vats. Right. And we go with young beer on okay. wood. Mm. We have, the beer has an alcoholic protection. Right. So this is less risky. 
So this beer is made to have an acid beer. And, and after two years, you have a very technical beer, a very acid beer. And then you blend that acid beer together with young beer to reduce the pH in your blend. That is the philosophy of this brewery. Hmm. Now, it's conservation by acidity. You, don't, you just have lactobacillus, you don't have pediococcus, you don't have bretanomyces. Just we don't look for bretanomyces. Okay. We don't look for pediococcus. You have it in wart infection. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the classic uh, uh, production of, of uh, these beers you, uh, that everybody knows about. You make a, a regular beer, and uh -huh. in, in Rodenbach's case, they, they have uh, a, a mixed culture that has both Saccharomyces and Lactobacillus. So when they ferment uh, their beer and put it in uh, uh, regular fermenters, it's got this mixed culture, so it's already acidified. And then they throw that in their wooden vats, uh, which is... Uh, got all these other cultures from uh, decades mm -hmm. before, uh, including some of that wild stuff that they picked up. And then for two years, it sits in these these wooden fooders and acidifies. Um, and that's one way to make these kinds of beers, but it's not the only way to make these kinds of beers. Um, Leafman's, which is kind of a, a, another classic example, is aged only in steel, it never goes into wood. Mm. So it has a mixed culture uh, that is pretty stable and does not involve the interaction of oxygen that, that changes the way those uh, bacteria and yeast behave. So they can get a much more consistent product at Leafman's. There is uh, one brewery called, uh, now it's called uh, Omer van der Ginste, uh, which was for formerly uh -huh. Bokor which is where these guys from Verzet I'm about to talk about came from. And they do, they still continue, uh, do a wild fermentation. So they do, uh, they have a cool ship and they use that. And other breweries do different kinds of variations on this. Uh, Verhaga is one of the most famous. I actually visited Verhaga when I was in Belgium this last time. They're very much like Rodenbach. They have a much, they have a similar process. But lest we think of these things as you know, uh, a dying tradition that doesn't have any relevance anymore. Uh, it was so delightful for me to go back and talk to these young guys uh, at Verzet, who, you know, they're, I guess they're now about in their early 30s. They seemed younger than that. It seems like people. <laughs> <laughs> That's just your, you're getting older, my people friend. People continue to seem younger, even though 30 seems very young now. <laughs> but they, they met at the University of Ghent at, in brewing school and then went off to other breweries to learn how to brew and secretly conspired to uh, bring Ode Brune back to this region. They wanted, they, they loved this kind of beer. And uh, they thought it would be cool to create a brewery that really focused on it. And they're kind of like a craft brewery in that they make more than just these beers. But I was delighted to hear that 30% of their production is, is this brown ale. Um, they make other things like, you know, classic Belgians, like triples and stuff uh, with beer. But they're really committed to this. And the first clip I want to play to introduce these guys um, we'll, we'll actually do a couple, but the first one talks about how they were inspired by the long tradition that existed and how he talks about his fathers and uncles because they're 30 years old. So like, yeah, what, what would be our lifetime? You go down. The <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they're talking about us, Jeff. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you could go down to the pub and uh, get a Pilsner or you could get one of these beers. So let's listen to 
the first clip where he talks about that, and then we'll follow it up quickly with uh, the a clip about the name. They call these things Ode Bruins, and there's a lot of question. You know, Rodenbach calls theirs. Uh, Rodenbach is often called a Flemish Red, while Leifman's is a Ode Brun, and now they're even starting to call all of these beers Rude Brun, which is red brown. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, he talks about uh, why he calls uh, his beers Ode Brune and I think makes a fairly compelling case that we all should be calling these things Ode Brune and, and abandon this weird thing with Flemish red or Flemish red. Yeah. 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 Uh, so here's Alex. Uh, he's the, the, the guy that I spoke with uh, and his, his partner is named Cohen and he talks about him too. So uh, let's listen to them and then we'll come back and chat. Yeah, the reason why we started the Brun is because we love Rodenbach. Uh, we love also the Van der Hens de Brun. Oh, I liked it a lot. It was for me the best beer that the brewery made. Uh, even it's uh, on the sweet side. Uh, or uh, if, well, your taste buttons also change if you drink a lot of sour beer. Right. You get your more. Well, we have that with, also with hoppy yeah, beers. Yeah, Americans you, get that with hops. So. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it it starts to evolve your taste buttons. So, but uh, we are a very fan of it. Uh, a huge fan. Uh, but the stories of our uncles and fathers in the 80s and 90s to next to each Pilsner tap. He had like a Rodenbach tap, mm. and we said, oh, well, we can't believe those stories almost, and we want the beer style popular again. Yeah. And we don't mind, we just want to become, that the, the beer style becomes popular again. Like with Lambic, that all the producers started to working together to, to get the quality better and also to get the faces in the right direction all together yeah. fighting for your neighbor to don't that the beer style doesn't uh, dies off uh, and we want to uh, do this about do the same by making the beer style but our own way uh, that and that people uh, yeah appreciate the beer style more and more and also young people well, that was idea to make it trendy again and not like oh, that's for my granddad that beer slam that's the idea for the beer geeks we choose uh, chose the wrong name because Oud Brun they don't link it with Rodenbach right uh, because for the beer geeks like Oud Brun is the non-barrel aged uh-huh. uh, mixed fermented beer like uh, Liefmans right um uh, and the West Flemish, they call it Flemish Red Ale, like the Rodenbach, the Vrage, uh, Duchesse de Bourgogne. Yeah. But the slang of the people, Oudbruin, if you ask her Oudbruin in uh, Rooselare, uh, you will get a Rodenbach. If you will ask it in Oudenaarde, you will get a Liefmans. It's, it's, uh, the common people don't say, for me, a Flemish Red Ale. People don't say it. If they want to style, they ask an Oudbruin and it depends on where you ask it in the, the southwest if you uh, ask it in East Flanders you will get one of a brewery of East uh, Flanders and if you ask it here you get uh, depending of 
which beer he has in his uh, cellar, he's, you're going to get that one. So we choose the words that people use and not the beer geeks. Uh. Wow, that's really, that's really cool. I love the, uh, the idea that this is old tradition they're trying to revive. So I, I, have, a, I have a couple questions. So is this, I mean, uh, there's lots of different versions out there and lots of very different ways to sort of make it, as you mentioned. Leafman says it's stainless and other people uh, put it in oak and stuff. But is the, is the base beer similar or is that also quite different? No, the base beer can really be different too. Uh, one of these breweries, I think it's uh, von Hansebruck. Um, I could be wrong about that. It might be uh, Struba. One mm-hmm. of them does a, a like a base brown beer, just like a regular Saccharomyces brown beer, and then mm-hmm. does a, 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 a wild beer of a blonde ale and then blends them together. So that's a weird thing. Huh. Yeah, so no, there's no there's no classic recipe. I think uh, as people have done taxonomies of this, they look at certain <laughs> breweries and say, oh, well, Rodenbach and Verhaga do it this way, so that's one tradition, and some of these others do it a different way, so that's a separate tradition. I, I think that's just wrong. And, yeah. uh, and I think that historically, as Alex was talking about, these were all just understood to be old browns, uh, which and the old refers to the old tradition. Uh, right. So, um, yeah. So that's there's that. So, yeah. so what do you think the touchstones are then? If someone just comes in, you know, in the old days when when you and I were, <laughs> when you and I were young, uh, and if we were in Belgium and an uncle and a <laughs> and a father, uh, what would we? I mean, is there kind of a general commonality? I mean, the fact that they're kind of reddish brown, I suppose. Yeah, so they're rude brun, <laughs> red brown. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I I think uh, the thing that the, one of the biggest differences between this beer, these beers, and the lambics, uh, they're both uh, have wild yeast and bacteria. Both kind of uh, uh, have a a sour quality, a tart quality. Uh-huh. But the brown ales are not known for their Brettanomyces character. And this is kind of a big thing. Okay, it's All much right. more of the and they'll have Brett in them, and we'll uh, we'll listen to where Verzette got their yeast because they were they were trying to figure out how to uh, make this traditional style, uh, but get a flavor profile that didn't didn't taste like lambics, but tasted right. like the, the tradition. Uh, and they did that both through their yeast, and we'll talk about uh, their production method too, which is I think another really important distinction how they prepare the wort uh, with this brown wort um, before they put the wild bugs in it but really the, from a flavor profile I think what I would say is you get a kind of a sweet and sour thing and the sour is much more bell like you know bright ding right. as opposed to that kind of dry sometimes briny pickle like thing yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there can be acetic acid. Uh, we don't need to go into the difference between lactic and acetic, but it's a, a kind of a sweetness that you get from the malt, which mm-hmm. which has residual stuff. You're going to get some fruity, uh, like dark fruits, uh, fruitcake kind of fruitiness, mm-hmm. and then this sour. And it can express itself in a lot of different ways. But I think those are, when you're talking about the the brown ales of Flanders, you're, you're going to get that, that sweet and sour combo. And yeah. uh, the lambics are more complex, have a lot more um, of the Brettanum Hyaces character, which produces all these really funky, bizarre flavors. 
super cool that they're trying to sort of bring back this tradition. It reminds me a little bit of like, you know, sort of traditional cascales in England and, you know, in the sense that these are sort of the beers that the earlier generations used to drink and they were everywhere. And now, and now they've kind of, they're kind of pushed aside by the, the global Pilsner onslaught. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the cool thing is, and, and one of the things that I think is uh, when I, when I've gone there, I have felt that Flanders, this part of Belgium is very distinctive and it has its own feel. And mm-hmm. when you talk to people, even just regular people, they're aware of the old brown tradition, the old brown beer tradition. Right. And I went to a place called Roman, uh, which uh, is in the same region. It's, it's quite close to Verzette, actually. Mm-hmm. And they they make a brown beer, but they make it, it has now been stripped of all its wild yeast. It's just kind of a, a kind of a, a Belgian brown, sort of like a double. Right. Uh, but they. It, it still casts back to this old tradition and the people who drink it think they're, you know, they're aware of the long tradition of this region. So even regular people get that this is part of the long tradition. And, right. uh, and that's, and I think why they call it Ode Bruins because people are just like, we make Browns here. Um, so it, it is, uh, it is not a kind of beer style. So sometimes when you go to uh, Brussels, the common people don't really drink a lot of the uh, lambics that, that we all love when we go there. They're right. not, they're not a broadly popular thing, right. but, but the brown ales, uh, people drink and, you know, Rodenbach is available all over the country. Uh, everybody knows it and everybody knows that it's a Flanders style. Right. So I think it, it's, uh, there's a cultural element here that's kept these beer styles alive, uh, and not only alive, but alive in the culture. And, and it, you kind of got to go there to have that impact <laughs> and, right. and, and sense, Oh, I see. This is, um, these are cultural expressions. We, we try to put everything in this category of beer style, right. but it's not really a style. It's kind of a cultural tradition that you have a brown ale. And if you have a brown ale, if a Belgian comes in there, he's not necessarily going to expect it to be a particular thing. He's not going right. to have that style framework. You know, he'll be like, okay, what's your brown ale like? Uh, yeah, but it, it's, yeah, exactly. It's sort of more like, oh, let's see what yours is like, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's that Belgian expectation that it would be different because why yeah. would you make a beer that tastes like Rodenbox? Right. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. So, so tell me about the Freem. What, what, uh, what's that like? Is it, uh, does it remind you of Flanders? I had, yes. So I had in my basement, both, uh, what they have, what they call their Flemish red and their, uh, Eau de Brune. And oh, interesting. they've got both. <laughs> they do have, they do have both. And I think that they're, they're, Tipping their hat both to Leafman's, which is their Ode Brune style, right. and yeah. the uh, and to Rodenbach with their other with their Flemish Red. Yeah. And I, I went with the Ode, Brune, Ode Brune just because we're drinking. We're talking about uh, Ode Brunes today. Um, I I personally love the approachability of this style because it it's much more uh, full bodied. This is it's very much a, an evocation of Leafman's, and if anybody hasn't had Leafman's, uh, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, also quite available in the United States. You can get a beer called Gutenbond, which the, the brewery makes. It's one I recommend. So mm-hmm. you get this um, uh, sweet, fl- and, and uh, this is this characterizes the freem that I'm drinking, this sweet, uh, fruity quality, um, and then the tart sourness, which balances it beautifully. And it has a quality of, and I'm always reminded of a sour broughten from Germany. You know, there's uh-huh. that kind of, uh, in that case, it's a, it's a, it's a tart and savory, and this is more tart and sweet. 
and, and uh, there's the, the the Flemish carbonade, which it's often served with because it's got similar kinds of characteristics. So it's it's a very um, food friendly beer. It's quite approachable. I have a hard time imagining very many people would taste it and feel like um, it was offensive. Um, it doesn't yeah. have a, it has no funk. Um, and this is a great example. It's I, I think from from my lights, you've got to have body. You know, it can't be dry and super. Um, uh, super thin. It's got to have some, right. some round uh, sweetness, and this has it. So this is actually a really wonderful example. Um, if you want to, if you want to buy a local one and see how Americans do it and do it well, Freem is a good one. I, I actually like this better than I like their Flemish Red. So there you go. Oh, interesting. So how how strong is it typically? By the way, there's they can they can really vary. Oh, okay. uh, they the Guten Bond is I think eight percent that mm-hmm. Leafmans make. But then you find others that have a similar profile that are at five percent. So it's uh, it varies. Okay, excellent. Let's talk about how how you come up, how you make a a wild beer that is different from uh, the lambics, since we're working right. with wild yeast and stuff. And I think the most important thing that really characterizes these styles and knocked me out when I read about them in La Comba is um, long boils. Okay, so yeah. you, you, if you boil a beer for a long time, you create um, these flavor qualities. And Alex is going to tell us about these uh, in uh, when, he, when he talks about how uh, boiling his beer. I, I did not know this when I visited this brewery, but um, they do very long boils. And I was so delighted, as you'll hear in this clip, um, <laughs> because I read about these crazy things in La Combra and like the Mechelen brown ale was was boiled for 12 hours. Uh-huh. Uh, which is a relatively brief uh, boil compared to the uh, Flemish uh, brown beer, which was he, he reported was boiled twenty hours. So I, I just have a practical question here: like, how much is left? <laughs> There's so much evaporation. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to. I, I, uh, Alex is going to tell us how okay, much good. is left when he does his long boil. Um, okay. Good. In this clip, yeah, and he's actually, as you'll hear. I don't want to step on it too much, but he's actually not looking to concentrate the wort so much as to create these melanoidins, which he'll talk about, which are flavor compounds that you can only get through boiling. It's a kind of a, an, a, a chemical process that happens. You can't right. get it from uh, using different kinds of uh, caramel malts or anything else. So the long boil is, is really important to create this. And uh, this flavor that I'm getting out of Freem, I think, is, is, is evocative of that and um, and I tried rosettes, and it's really pronounced in their beer. So let's let's listen to the long boil clips, okay. and then we'll uh, um, and then we'll talk about yeast, which is the final bit that they are uh, doing, and that's also very cool. We are in search now for the uh, sour, uh, full-bodied, without using uh, added sugar or sweeteners. Uh-huh. We want to search for a natural uh, sour. Uh, full body taste uh, cool. and that's one of the part is the boiling mm-hmm. so you make melanoid right. di- what melanoidin yeah. we no, call no 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 in, in english yeah that uh, so that's our sugars and uh, proteins combining together and they are unfermentable so you get a full body and uh, th- so that's why we do it also they're uh, good for aging uh, because they are reductonin they uh, uh, will uh, react with oc- uh, uh, oxidation, yeah, oxygen. Yeah. So 
Uh, you had that more fruity character. So you're actually wanting those oxidative yeah. uh, reactions. Yeah, not oh. in the blonde beers. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, for, right. for the Oudbrun, we want it. Interesting. Uh, that's why we also make the super boil. That's the Oudbrun boiled for 16 hours. Nice. Uh, and That's old school. Yeah. That's how they did it uh, 150 years ago. We, we got it from a book, but we had to wait to, until we have our own brewery to do it. Because right. the Ranke said... Not on our brew house, yeah. you don't. <laughs> so that's why uh, since 2016 we do it once or twice a year. Nice. Uh, that is super cool. And we uh, use it, uh, we then divide it in different barrels and we use it in our standard Oudbrun blends. Mm -hmm. Because it's an extra color in our color palette to blend in. Uh -huh. But you have more fruit, red fruits during the barrel aging. Uh, during the boil, it's not like a heavy boil, yeah. but like a spaghetti sauce right, uh, simmering. Yeah. Uh, but we evaporate 50% and then we add water again okay. because we don't want to have a high gravity beer. Right. Uh, but we want to add caramelized flavors. Yeah, we wanted to hit like 24 hours. Uh -huh. But the first time that we did it, we had a party to, to kill the time. Because boiling, uh, when, once you boil, you don't have... But we wanted to be at the brewery. But after 16 hours, it was already morning and we had a hangover <laughs> and we said, uh, let's, sto let's stop it here. So that's why we do it now 16 hours. Yeah. Uh, because in the, in the books that we had from Oudenaarde, where Roman is, you had uh -huh. a lot of Oudbrun makers there, like 100 years ago. Yeah. And they boiled like 20 to 24 hours. Yeah. And we wanted to know what's the impact of that long boil. Yeah. Uh, so what's the difference in your... Can you describe the difference between the, the three hour and the 16 hour boil, what it does to the work, how it changes that? It gets more uh, full bodied and also during the barrel aging, more red fruits. Uh -huh. It's like, it's more complex. No, it's not uh, the cheapest and not most ecological thing, but it's, uh, we want to create the best Oudbrun in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not most, uh, not always the most efficiently if you want to be something the best right. for and it's a part of our blends so we have once a year we do like uh, we have two brews of it like one that we use in blends and one that we like bottle after 11 months of barrel aging again so people can taste mm. the 16 hour boil mm. uh, cool. so that they know uh, why we do it if it's and they can choose for themselves it's uh, a good idea or not oh well that's interesting uh, that was going to be my next question was do you just uh, add water back because otherwise you sort of end up with a sludge I suppose <laughs> right yeah yeah and uh, I, I, I get I, it's weird uh, when you read the Lacombre stuff they don't talk about adding water back but they talk about the gravities which were not ex especially high so I my sense uh, what's that they yeah they must. must they must be adding water back because you know you're going to be boiling down uh, uh he you know he he mentioned in that that clip that he just does a simmer i know that if you do a rolling boil you boil off even more and um lacombra's texts don't talk about whether it was a simmer or a rolling boil or whatever but yeah they're gonna end up with a, a lot of concentration after <laughs> yeah. after that much time so uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah you get you end up with a reduction you'd have like that's right syrup. That's yeah, right. Have some syrup. 
I, I think if, if somebody out there is, wants to make these beers, uh, trying a long boil is something I would highly recommend, but um, maybe adding water back at the end uh, so you get melanoidins, but you, uh, you know, you don't, you won't have like a, a 30 Play-Doh beer going in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another question, I suppose, is like when, like how long can you just boil it? When you get the melanoidins, can you keep adding water or is you just have to keep reducing it to get those melanoidins? I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I, my sense is it's a linear graph. So, you know, the longer you boil it, the more you get. And uh, right. so I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And then the last thing we'll do is we'll talk about the yeast. And Expensive, I, by the way, like boiling for 16 hours. That's not cheap. Exactly. And he joked about that when he was at Durango. They said, you're not allowed to do that at our brewery. So they had to get their own brewery together. Uh, all the magic, of course, happens with the yeast, with any, any wild beer. Again, I was so delighted to hear him talk about uh, the way that they came up with their yeast profile. And he mentions here the whole process of how they got, got their first yeast. In. And, uh, you know, I, I interviewed we, we talked for two hours. I have a lot of tape, and I didn't include this, but we went to their barrel room afterwards, and he does have one barrel. Uh, all his barrels are named for uh, musical people. So they have four fooders, and they're named for the Ramones. Each one is the <laughs> named after a Ramon, uh, Dee Dee and Joey and so on. And every single oak vessel they have is named after a musician except one which is named which is called mother and i was like what's that one all about and he said oh yeah that's where we keep the original culture that we developed so we always we always have a culture that comes from the original um which we will now hear how he got so you do a, a primary fermentation with re regular saccharomyces yeah what's yeast that we harvested from another tank uh-huh uh then because if there's some wild yeast in it, it's not that well. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's gonna get sour anyway, so we don't yeah. we take that risk. Yeah. Uh, and that's like one way week fermentation, and then we mature don't mature it on stainless steel, but then it goes into barrels. Mm -hmm. uh, and there we add our ho house culture, uh, home culture. And how did you come up with your house culture? Like doing uh, the first batch that we ever did as a homebrew, we put the wort outside, oh, like did. 200 liters, uh -huh. and uh, the, uh, the day after we put it into uh, the barrel, uh -huh. and we got lucky having a good culture, and since then we harvest the yeast from barrels that we empty. Uh -huh. uh, we like If we empty 10 barrels, we take the best four barrels, or best three uh, barrels, taking the slurry, from the bottom of the barrel, uh -huh. uh, clean the barrels, uh, yeah, putting that yeast in bottles, refilling them, and then taking the culture back in the barrels. Uh -huh. It's like a sourdough bread right. uh, idea that we do right. uh, by always selecting the best barrels. So our we know our culture is evolving because we choose by taste, mm -hmm. um, but we don't want to be on our uh, lab under a microscope is uh, uh, taking all the different Trying strains. To them yeah, and yeah. Uh, we are more like uh, if our taste bottoms say take the, this barrel uh, to to go on. Uh, that's how we do it. Uh. When you did that first uh, spontaneous 
thing. Where where did you do that? What part of the country were you in? Uh, the southwest Flanders. Uh, well, I w lived in a home of uh, Omer van der Henste. So, okay. Uh, because uh, yeah, I left next to the brewery. So, so I, wa I was also the janitor, or how do you say it? Janitor? Janitor. So, uh, wow. Uh, yeah, I worked in the morning in the brewery and in the evening. And if there was like in the night a technical problem with the brewery, they called me up and uh -huh. I fixed the problem. Uh -huh. uh, so we did it. I had like a... Like a... A room there where we have our brew, our hobby uh, brew house in it, and we put just put a cooking kettle of 200 liters outside and let it inoculate for uh, a night, and then in right. in uh, my cellar we had put the barrel, and then right, by gravity we fill the barrel and That's it started cool. fermenting. What time of year was that? I think uh, November or uh -huh. something. Yeah, like the uh, and that was the idea to do to make a. With spontaneous yeast. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, it sounds like, so they kind of do uh, natural selection. They, they take their best barrels, the, the stuff they like the best, and that's that's the yeast they yeah, preserve. Yeah, exactly. They they do, and this is, you know, you and I have talked about uh, the, the blending process for these kinds of beers, which is uh -huh. such a critical piece of any wild, uh, uh, anybody making wild beer, uh, will will blend these things because you end up with weird lots and and uh, spiky bits. Um, right. So they they do the same thing, and uh, this is something that Rudy does at a Rodenbach. Um, they every year they they they've got. I'll, I'll use a picture uh, of their barrel room for this podcast so you can see it. But they've got these four big fooders, but then they have a whole bunch of wine barrels and and uh, or wine size barrels. I think some were not wine barrels, and. Uh, when they do blends, they try to create, I asked them about this, they, they try to create a, a, a profile that is recognizably Verzette. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're mm. trying to look for a consistent palette over time. And that does mean, you know, some of these barrels that they have are, are weird and give weird flavors. And we did, as it's often the case when you visit a brewery, we did uh, some tastes uh, and and mm -hmm. uh you know he's yeah. like oh this one's really sour try this one <laughs> and uh we i tried that one it would really pucker and then because i'm a giant ramones fan i said all right i gotta try uh joey ramone and we tried joey ramone yeah so that was uh that was cool um and their their you know their plan is to continue to grow the brewery uh and grow that that uh uh barrel ha barrel room that they have and we walked in and it was really humid and i said oh this is amazing you're able to uh uh regulate the humidity i see you like it humid in here uh, and he said oh yeah uh, we try to keep it humid and i said do you have like is how do you do that and he said well uh it's pretty humid in here all the time but um if it gets a little dry we don't really we can't really regulate it so we <laughs> we just dump a bunch of water on the floor <laughs> <laughs> so there you go yeah, sure. uh they're in ingenious <laughs> that way. Uh, so, is it working? Are they? St is the uh, sort of tradition coming back? Or are they having an impact? You think? They, I think they are, and I think it's great that it's a new brewery with young guys. They're hip. Uh, they look cool. 
the people who come into this, it looks like a craft brewery. It's in an old industrial building. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you walk in there and it, and it, it does not, it, you know, Rodenbach feels like, oh my God, this should be a national monument to history. This is extraordinary. Right. <laughs> it's so cool. This feels like a, a craft brewery. And uh, they have, it's just in a giant warehouse and they actually have created a tap room, which is, it's just one undifferentiated space. And so they've kind of thrown a bunch of couches and tables together and, <laughs> and, and crowded some stuff around it to create kind of makeshift walls. Uh, and you can cruise in there and hang out. And my sense is it's going to appeal largely to a younger audience. Um, and, right. I, and I think that's great. And we talked a little bit about how, uh, you know, he, he's really, he's really trying to make Odebrun cool again. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I think they've got a good shot at it. You know, I think it's a great beer style and, um, every, every tradition goes through these periods where when it's young and fresh and cool, uh, it grows. And then what starts to be seen as your grandfather's beer, it wanes and you have to figure right. out ways of refreshing it throughout the, the generations. Um, and then reclaiming these old traditions becomes a hip, a hip process, right? So. Exactly. And that, <laughs> that goes back to that. One of those first clips we listened to where they, they were these young guys, but they fell in love with the old tradition and, and they want to help others do that. So, yeah. so they yeah. Make it cool. You have a note here that says, uh, Verzette means resistance, which is mm. kind of cool. Yeah, I asked about that because it's uh, it's they're in the Dutch speaking, the Flemish speaking part. So it, the the brewery is is Verzet, uh, T uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Browery or Brow. It's with it's spelled with a J at the end. Browridge. Uh-huh. It's like Browridge, it's yeah. pronounced Browery. Right. Uh, lowercase T apostrophe Verzet, uh, and it means the the brewery of resistance. And so I had, I was like, I don't, and I, what, what's all this mean? And he said, yeah, it means resi- resistance. And we are, uh, we are standing as a, we are resisting uh, mass market beer. We are resisting uh, the trend right. towards, fla- un, you know, flavorless, boring beer. And we want to uh, reestablish this tradition. So very cool guys. That's great. That's yeah. awesome. I, I'm trying to think of another, another example of something quite like this, where it's like a clear regional tradition, but doesn't have like a set blueprint, you know, um, that's yeah. pretty cool. It's so Belgian. It's just so Belgian. It's, <laughs> it, it just, uh, everything about them was so Belgian. And, uh, I, you know, I'm glad I got to play those clips. I think, I wish everybody would have a chance to, to tour breweries uh, because you get to listen to these people. He does a, I guess, Flemish thing where he says, wah, he'll, you know, it's it's like the Scottish, ah. It's a, yeah. just, it's a very particular <laughs> uh, uh, vocalization that is super specific to his region. And uh, it's just wonderful to hear people talk um, and yeah. hear them think about beer. And we went and tried the beer, by the way. I should mention this. We went and tried his beer. And <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, so we tried the we tried all his. He makes a, a series of different versions. He makes like the the classic Ode Brune, and then he makes the the long boil Ode Brune. So we tried those back to back, which was kind of amazing. It's the sixteen hour boil one, and then he does he does one with that's got some fruit in it, and he does also this one that's got oak leaves in it, which I thought was one of those craft beer things. It's like, well, you're young guys, you're doing weird <laughs> throwing in oak leaves, you know. And I said. Are you are are they are are you getting dried leaves? Like what's that? Nope, we just we pull them right off right, right off the tree. They're really fresh. Okay, we tried it though, and it was extraordinary. 
he he described reading about it in his girlfriend's a, a hippie book of his girlfriends uh, that talked about weird um, uh, like herbal teas and stuff, mm-hmm. and he got inspired to uh, to use oak leaves in it, and it actually it was I was my favorite version of the whole stuff because it provides this almost bay leaf like tannic quality which right. adds this third element so you got the tart you got the sweet and then you get this little bitterness in there and that was extraordinary um it's very good beer they they he he was self-conscious uh i, I think i believe it was in that first quote about um they want to make the best Ode brune in the world and you know i i, I mean rodenbach's down the road which they revere and they they want to make the best Ode brune in the world and i I just, God bless you, man. That's the way to go. Let's, let's, you shouldn't start a brewery if you don't want to make the best beer in the world. And it's, even if it's a bold and, and seems like impudent thing to do, I, I really admire it. That's great. Well, that sounds really cool. Yeah. I know you have a couple of pictures, by the way. Maybe you can post them on the, the Beer Vana Pod Twitter. I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. And everyone in uh, the sound of our voice, uh, go to Twitter if you're on Twitter, at Beer Vana Pod and, uh, follow us there and you can ask questions and I'll throw photos up. So that'll be that cool. cool. We should probably right. move on. I've rattled yeah, on for should. a long time here. Uh, <laughs> so you, I think have a Sherpa for us today. I do you have a Sherpa. Yes, I do have a Sherpa. I know I've talked a lot, but um, I had a beer that just totally electrified me. And uh, it, one, one nice thing about the coronavirus is I've been sampling from other beer breweries that I don't normally sample from because I, mm-hmm. or not to say it, i this brewery is one that uh, I sample from a lot. You but, do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this beer, I probably wouldn't have chased down because it's a hazy IPA. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have bought it. But um, I've been sampling broadly. So uh, it's from Ecliptic, our friends at Ecliptic, John Harris. Uh, uh-huh. But it, it's this hazy uh, called Vega, which is their experimental range. Uh, they make a 45 IBU IPA and they use different hops in it. And this one includes the Belma hop, B E L M A, which has hmm. a super strawberry note. Oh, interesting. Uh, it, it's a Washington state. It's kind of like Amarillo. It came out of nowhere. Uh, they found it growing uh, on the uh, property of a particular uh, farm in Yakima. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it has a very strawberry flavor, and this thing is insanely good. It's it's uh, it's a hazy, uh, but it's got um, uh, it, it, it's got all that fruitiness for right in the center is this incredibly lush strawberry note. Uh, and you know, as as I think it's more characteristic of the Northwest, these things tend to have a little bit more IBUs. 45 IBUs is, is a fairly significant IBUs for a, for a hazy. And I, I'm pretty sure John is using, uh, bittering hops. So you're getting a kind of classic bitter hop there. And it, from, from my, purposes it really makes those fruity notes pop uh if you have a little bit of bitterness and this thing i mean i i i love this beer so much i've been uh, <laughs> i've been dreaming about this beer and i had it i had it the, for the first time i had it i thought this is an amazing beer and i then i talked to you about it and i later uh i poured out the second one and i thought oh man it will it stand up and i couldn't right. both it was even better i couldn't believe how good it was so I'm loving this. So, beer. okay. So Vega is a rotating line. It's yeah. It's their experimental line where they always make uh, a standard base beer and they use different hops. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So this one's number seven. Yeah, it's called number seven. It's number seven. And if you turn the can over, uh, if you look at, if you're in the grocery store and you find a Vega and you wonder, is this the one? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure they're all good, but it's this one Jeff was talking about. If you flip it over, it actually set, it has printed on the bottom of the can uh, which hops are in it. And you want to look for the one that has the Belma in it, which all is number right. seven, which if you go online, you'll see it's number seven. But. Okay. That sounds good. All right. All right. Turning to the mailbag. To the mailbag. Uh, this one is for you. And okay. uh, Jason Wells, friend of the podcast, sent this yes. in. And it's a it was a really long email. I actually read it out loud and timed myself to see if I could read it out loud. <laughs> It would take me five, literally five minutes to read it, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will, I will summarize it and throw it to you because it's to you. Yeah. Uh, so this, I will, I will read the start and then summarize. Jason writes: I always enjoy listening to Patrick's economic side of the beer discussions, and was very surprised to find that I vehemently disagreed with the observations uh, of this episode. And he's talking about when we did a beernomics about the coronavirus. Yeah. When discussing the shutdown and approach to reopening, the comment about calculating the cost uh, of a life lost to COVID-19 versus the economic cost of a closed business really hit a nerve. And uh, he he went on to unpack this in a uh, uh, careful and detailed way, um, and, uh, but but probably a way that that uh, one can imagine. I'll, I'll actually do some screen captures and throw this on our Birana Pod <laughs> Twitter if you want to read the whole thing. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, I think I think that there's sort of a couple of themes. Uh, one was just this idea, sort of this cold, this idea that you'd calculate life sort of cold and abstract. Um, and the other is whether, in fact, uh, opening up would ease the economic concerns that I was uh, uh, worried about um, anyway. And um, uh, I, so I'll, I'll respond in a couple of ways. The first is that I wasn't intending to advocate necessarily for like throwing the doors open and, and opening up the, uh, the economy. But what I was lamenting was the, the lack of two things. One was, I thought, a, a calculation of not just the immediate, you know, sort of headline unemployment uh, numbers, small business loan numbers and and quote like the ones we had in the newspaper uh sorry in the news segment uh but the long-term sort of the loss of uh, education the 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 long-term um spells and unemployment the productivity loss that you get from that and so on and so forth and on the other side uh coming up with some kind of metric um to balance out the 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 metric from public health like we understand uh, that opening may lead to sort of an infection rate, which may lead to hospitalization rate, which may to lead to mortality rate. But uh, how do you assess that? Um, and my and, and my simple uh, argument is that you have to be able to assess it some way, because if you can't assess uh, it, then you're just basically um, you know making decisions from the gut, which don't make a lot of sense and can lead to a lot of inefficiency. And so you know the, the way that we think about uh, you know, highway safety or regulating cars or airline safety or drug safety, all of that stuff. Uh, we do these cost benefit analysis where we think about the cost of a human life. And so we could make, uh, automobile traffic, uh, travel much safer. We could sort of lower speed limits on the interstate to 20 miles an hour. And we probably save a lot of lives that way. 
uh, at the same time, it would come with a big societal cost. And so we're always having to think about these trade-offs. It's not a or, or just just to defend you, that many states have raised them to 70 miles an hour, and if you kept it at 55, for example. Yeah, but but the point is not not the decisions they made, but how did they come to a decision? It's this decision about what is the appropriate uh, cost that we're willing to pay for increased safety, or any other, uh, or, or talking the other way, what what are we willing to give up in terms of safety and, and higher mortality in order to achieve these more sort of maybe efficiencies in other parts of the economy? And so these are hard questions. These are uncomfortable questions. I understand politically these are almost toxic questions. Uh, so a lot of right. this stuff happens in bureaucracies behind doors where you don't, you know, they don't see the light of day very much. But my point really is that we do this all the time. And so I get uh, what I was expressing was my frustration about sort of even this governor, uh, our governor, Governor Brown of Oregon, comes up with a plan that's very sensible, it seems, in terms of public health, but doesn't doesn't really say, okay, this is what um, is acceptable and unacceptable. And like, how do they decide whether they need to scale back the opening? Um, uh, is more just kind of seems to me shooting from the hip rather than uh, making this cold calculation. So um, it's quite possible. That's right. I mean, if 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 we open up the economy and, and people aren't feeling safe and they don't come to businesses, then it's really not going to do any good, right? So I understand all of that. Um, and I wasn't trying to um, uh, to discount loss of life, but. I was trying to sort of push this idea that look, you do have to, um, you do have to decide whatever that decision is. You got to decide what's sort of the acceptable uh, uh, mortality risk that you're willing to, well, not willing to, but what's what is the mortality risk balanced with the the potential gain to um, uh, the economy. <clears throat> and I was also pushing this narrative, and I will defend it that you know the economy isn't just um, corporations. Right, corporations are made up of people. I mean, the economy is us. The economy is uh, people who work um, and uh, benefit from their productivity. And so, I think it's it's a little bit of um, uh, he says that it's sort of a false dichotomy and mentions whether I care about you know buffalo wild wings versus human life. You know, I, I would say that buffalo wild wing is a bunch of human lives, <laughs> even though it's it's this you know sort of faceless corporate chain. There's a lot of people who work for buffalo wild wings. Buffalo wild wings supports a lot of suppliers and businesses behind it, and and um, that's important too. So um, uh, I'll defend my I I'll defend myself um, and say that I think that you have to think about all of these parts of the economy, and you also have to do the unpleasant task of of weighing the cost benefits, um, including uh, mortality risk. I don't have too much to add, and I'm not an economist, so. But um, I'm going to add this anyway. Uh, my sense is, you know, we w- the only safe way to uh, open any uh, economy, uh, open any any society during coronavirus, is if we have vaccines. So if you're going to wait, you're going to keep it shut down until you have a vaccine. That's that's one alternative. Or even better, or even better, effective treatment. But that's probably an, an unlikely goal. Yeah, either way, I mean, you're talking about um, you're talking about things that are way down the road. So then you have to ask the question: uh, How do we, if, if we're not going to shut the economy down for a year, what's the alternative? I think you have to look at the difference between uh, the dumb opening and the smart opening, and that takes into account all the things that you're talking about. And I, I look at what uh, Governor Brown did, and it seems like that's fairly smart. You know, taking a lot of precautions, but still moving forward, especially in places where it doesn't seem like there's a hot spot. Um, so. Uh, you know, you have to balance these things, and we only get what the politician uh, 
tells us at the time, we don't actually get to hear the deliberation, but my guess here in Oregon, for example, when Kate Brown was thinking about opening was all, I bet she was talking to economists and they were saying, you can't keep this thing shut down for a year, which is why we're opening now. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's, these are, these are thorny, challenging, uh, uh, painful discussions, but, um, and, and I think we all wish that we could understand all, you know, like everybody thinks Dr. Fauci is, um, uh, Every you know is the, the the most neutral and informed voice, but he's not an economist. So you talk to an economist, you get one voice. You talk to an epidemiologist, you get another voice. Um, that there's there there are a lot of voices to listen to and balance yeah. here. And it's well, and that's the challenge of policy, right? And that's the challenge right. of a policymaker is being able to to uh, take all of those voices, the the information you're getting. You know, the public health experts tell you what to expect. You know. Uh, and what you can expect in terms of um, infection rates and hospitalization rates and mortality. Uh, economists hopefully can do a decent job telling you what to expect in terms of economic costs. And then at some point you have to come up with some kind of metric, some kind of algorithm that guides you forward. Um, and my point simply is that if you, if you just say human life is invaluable uh, and priceless, um, then there is no way forward, right? I mean, then, then every, but everything shuts down completely. If, if all you're focused is on the, the effect of coronavirus, even if your effect on life, by the way, I mean, I think that there's big life effects, uh, big health effects for people who are uh, unable to work in our society with no social safety net. So anyway, we don't need to re-adjudicate this, but I'll just say that um, I appreciate your comment, uh, Jason. You and I hopefully respectfully disagree on this. Um, uh, and um, I do want to make clear that I wasn't suggesting we, we just, you know, take the break, the handbrake off completely and and go crazy. I just was lamenting the fact that I didn't feel like there was a, uh, a real uh, discussion that included both public health and uh, economists um, in having sort of this sober, sober, uh, sober discussion about how we how we navigate these, 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 uh, this tension. And, and my guess is, uh, these discussions are being happen are happening at every level of the government and you're having pretty sharp disagreements and and uh and and thinking going on because these are just really hard decisions so i bet you know you're <laughs> for the federal government i bet at the state government i bet at multnomah county level you have economists yeah. and epidemiologists all talking and trying to figure this stuff out and it's it's just yeah. it's tough yeah well the toughest thing and probably my biggest my the, the reason i complain so uh so uh so vociferously was that it seems like in the end it becomes a political question rather than a rational policy question and that's what really frustrates me um, right. is when politics start start uh, uh, pushing to the front of the line I think that's where we we start making big mistakes and we're seeing that right now uh, with all these willy-nilly approaches so totally all right well I think these let's keep having these discussions keep letting us know how you're feeling about these and uh, Oregon is opening up, so we'll see. We're getting a real-time <laughs> yeah. experiment, and we'll and see th- what thank happens. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much, Jason, for your for your note. And everybody, please um, uh, uh, don't forget to to send in your questions, comments, suggestions, whatever it is. Um, but I'll get there. So a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. <laughs> that, that helps other <laughs> listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, as I said, so please send your questions and comments to jeff at beervanablog.com. It's an email, or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff uh, blogs at beervana, 
uh, and uh, sorry, he tweets at Birvana and blogs at the Birvana blog. And Patrick tweets at uh, Birnomics. And Jeff, I've somehow I'm a teetotaler today. I do, kind of forgot to. I didn't have a Belgian beer, so I couldn't join you with that. But uh, but I don't have any drink at all, so I'll just have to cheers you with my um, with the dregs of my tea. Oh, all right. Well, I have drunk an entire Freem Brune, uh, <laughs> and I'm feeling good. Uh, all it's, right. It's uh, we're recording on a Friday, and Friday I'm afternoon. Feeling, yeah, feels feels like uh, this is all going my way. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. All right. So, cheers, Jeff. <laughs> cheers, Patrick. X-ray.